You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. Today, I'd like to share with you an episode of Fixable, a podcast from TED hosted by leadership coaches Ann Morris and Francis Fry. Each week, they help real people solve their workplace issues, often in under 30 minutes. In this special episode, you'll hear what happened when Francis was brought in to help Uber fix a trust breakdown at their company. Whether you apply it at work or home, they share actionable insights to help you understand what trust really is, how it works, and how you can rebuild it when it's broken. For more from Anne and Francis, you can listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can submit your workplace questions through their hotline at 234-FIXABLE. Leading Up With Udemy returns for Season 5 on Wednesday, January 10th. And I'm thrilled to say we've got some incredible guests lined up in the new year, sharing some excellent and actionable leadership takeaways. If you haven't already, follow Leading Up With Udemy to get notified when Season 5 begins on January 10th. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Fixable. I'm Ann Morris. I'm a company builder and a leadership coach. And I'm Frances Fry. I'm a Harvard Business School professor and I'm Ann's wife. We hope you had a great summer break. We had a great summer break. Frances, is that a fair statement? Oh, we certainly did. We certainly did. What was the highlight for you? I think the highlight was going to the beach, fishing, <laughs> swimming. And by fishing, I mean watching our boys fish. Yes. <laughs> Swimming, yep. mostly watching our boys <laughs> swim, but we we moved as a uh, as a family unit in a really wonderful and joy sparking way. Yeah, I think the memory I'm going to hold on to is is the joy of the fish coming out of the water yes. on the end of some makeshift hook, <laughs> followed by delight of our children. I don't yeah. know that there's anything that causes more delight in their lives right now than catching a fish and throwing it back. And catching yeah. another. Uh, but we've also been hard at work putting together a brand new batch of fixable episodes for you. I'm, I'm really excited about the second half of this season. We're going to be tackling some fascinating stuff over the next few weeks, including how to set boundaries as a leader, how to authentically promote yourself on social media, what to do about automation anxiety, and, and a lot more. Oh, automation anxiety is going to be really good. Today's episode is a good one too. In fact, it's pretty special, wouldn't you say? I would use the word special. Uh, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, tell the people what we're up to today, Francis. Oh, we're not going to have a caller today. And that's because we need the entire episode and we're going to talk about how to build and rebuild trust. Yeah, it's something we've thought a lot about, written a lot about. It's, it's really at the core of our work. And here's the thing, it's often talked about at this mushy, <laughs> esoteric level that's not particularly actionable. And so today we really want to drill down and not only make the case for why trust is so critical uh, in any organization, but also give people a really solid foundation for how to build trust. What are the mechanics of trust and what do you do when it gets lost? In fact, our hope is after this single episode, 
everyone knows how to build and rebuild trust in a really pragmatic way. You and I do two kinds of work, at least. The first is what we sometimes refer to casually is firefighting. So there's a company or organization that is in some kind of crisis and we get the phone call and we show up quickly and roll up our sleeves and join the team in fighting the fire. We also help organizations that are trying to reach a very ambitious goal to more often than not shorten that timeline yeah, or otherwise get there faster and better. Yeah. Is it fair to say that Uber was in the first camp? <laughs> uh, the reason I laugh is because it was so obvious then, like this was 2017. Right. There are some people that won't have known, but very cleanly in the front pages of the newspaper, the whole world knew it had a crisis. And so what the, what the hell were we thinking? <laughs> How did we end up uh, as part of the story. Well, a main protagonist is Megan Verna Joyce. <laughs> Let's just name her, <laughs> which is uh, a grad of HBS. She wasn't my student, but she came back to talk to me after she graduated. And she's like, I work for Uber. Um, would you be willing to come and talk to our CEO, Travis Kalnick? And I said, Megan, No. Mm -hmm. And and I only help good people who win. I've never met Travis, but what I have read in the newspaper, it's not even like ambiguous. Um, And what was the nature of the crisis for people who don't remember? um, They were many, but it was the press reporting on a horrific uh, sequence of events of sexual harassment. The delete Uber campaign happened, which is when riders banded together and were so upset with how Uber was treating drivers that they had a delete Uber campaign. Um, There was how Uber behaved during a taxi strike. Their relationship with regulators was terrible. So that it just was a perfect storm of public events that gave light to what was going on privately. And Megan, she was like, there's limited information in the newspaper. Mm. Um, if you could do me the kindness of flying out and meeting with him, I would be super grateful. And yeah. Megan could do anything. Mm-hmm. And she was choosing to work for Uber, largely because of Travis, largely mm-hmm. because of the CEO. And so I said yes. And what was that first meeting with Travis like? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I had the flight back on the same day, right? I was going <laughs> to, it was an hour meeting or 90-minute meeting. I allowed it two hours, and I was taking the red eye home. And- I got there and, and met him. And first of all, I was just wasn't expecting how boyish and earnest and super quick and bouncy that he was. Mm. And he was so affable and made me feel very welcome. And we just got down to business. And so he was drawing on the whiteboard um, And then here's what I really liked about him. There was turn-taking. And then Mm. I was drawing on the whiteboard. Mm. And then he was, and then we both were. And if I could play the piano and he could play the piano, it was as if it was a duet. (laughs) And so that one or two-hour meeting, it lasted three days. Mm. I changed my flight home five 
times. And what was on the whiteboard? Oh, everything from the business model to the multi-stakeholders, drivers, riders, regulators, board, employees, management, and what the value propositions were for them, the economics that were the organization was competing within. Um, and he was like, what else? Come on, I don't believe those are all your questions. And so we went after everything. And I'm like, look, Travis, I read the newspaper and it sounds like you are a tyrant. Help me understand why would reasonable people think that and tell me why it's not true. I yeah. want to pause here for yeah. a second and look at the challenges of Uber through the lens of trust, which is the topic yeah. of today's conversation. Yeah, so Uber had lost trust with every single major stakeholder, employees, riders, drivers, regulators, owners, leaders. Key groups of employees. Every single stakeholder. And everyone loved the idea of Uber, but wow, were they unhappy. And if you go one layer down on your own diagnosis of the problem, yeah. what, what's the headline story? Well, the headline was- wh- yeah. Why trust was breaking down. Yeah, well, the headline was they had problems with like an emotional blockade that wasn't permitting things to go through. So even when the logic made sense, there was still an emotional blockade. And then in the case of drivers, for example, the absence- of empathy around what it was really taking to feed your family in the gig economy was getting in the way of designing a viable job for drivers. And even more specific, like small things, like they were like, why do you send me in the opposite direction of my home when it's my last ride? Right, <laughs> right. Like, and so, and the drivers had all kinds of reasonable ideas, which were entirely implemented within like five minutes of a work because none of them were hard, but we just hadn't focused on it. Yeah. And it just felt like what we had seen so many times, it felt like trust. Yeah. And we talk about it as the foundation of leadership because it is the thing that allows me to be willing to be guided by you. Yeah. And this was the problem at Uber at this moment in time. It was an example of how a lack of trust with a range of stakeholders could bring a company to its knees. And then how do you rebuild that trust? It's not about trust falls or company retreats. It's about real thoughtful step-by-step work that anyone can learn. And Francis, it's what you had to do with the company to real success, which we'll talk a little bit more about at the end of the episode. Yeah, and and I'll just add that I hope it's clear from this story that the stakes of getting this right could not be higher. I mean, trust is everything. It's the foundation of all human progress. Yeah. Too strong? No. <laughs> I don't no. think so, right? No, like, I mean, it's the foundation for everything we do. Is, it means foundation for our marriage, for- the economy, uh, when we buy stock, yep. when we, you know, like w- whether or not we can trust one another, whether or not we can trust our systems, in the absence of trust- we relitigate again and again and again. It's like being in quicksand and we can make almost no progress and it takes a really long time. In the presence of trust, holy Toledo, things can move really fast and things can go much higher. The 
buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. Let's get into the mechanics of trust. Yeah. As you and I think about this all day, we talk about it all day. Um, and I think you go one layer deeper, which is what's really driving trust. And there's a very stable pattern. So describe the pattern. Yeah. So the stable pattern is that when we see trust between two people, we always, always, always observe three specific dynamics. And anytime we don't see trust between two people, one of those three is missing. So you are more likely to trust me if you experience that it's the real me in it for you with rigorous logic. So you are more likely to trust me if you experience my authenticity, my empathy, and my logic. The real me in it for you with a rigorous plan that is worthy of your trust. <laughs> right. So Francis, what is this, this wobble <laughs> that we talk so much about? It, it's, when, it's when either authenticity, logic, or empathy gets in the way and is shaky between two constituents. So for example, the drivers at Uber did not think that the company was like really in it for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. they didn't believe in the company's empathy towards them. They mm-hmm. believed that the company was being authentic and maybe even they believed in the rigor of the plan, but they didn't think that they were a key constituent in it. Whereas they saw the riders were a very key constituent. Right. So they were like, okay, Uber, you have the capacity in our eyes to display empathy. You're just not displaying it towards us. And that is guaranteed to put quicksand instead of a solid foundation. Excellent. Um, what's your wobble, baby? <laughs> I have an empathy wobble, uh, which is, in 2023, the most common wobble. By our estimates of people that we work with around the world, it's 60% or greater people have uh, empathy wobbles. What's a recent example of when you wobbled on empathy? Oh, goodness. Um, Yesterday, I was in a meeting with a team that had various stakeholders. Every one of them was there to be helpful to us every one of them. And one of the stakeholders was not performing as pristinely as I wanted. And I was so quick to impatience. And my impatience, I think, oh, you know, I'll just be impatient, but no one will notice. (laughs) And here's a public service announcement to empathy wobblers. We know your empathy is wobbling when you're speaking. And we definitely know your empathy is wobbling when you're not speaking. So I was non-verbally impatient with someone whose entirety of their job is there to uh, help set us up for success. Amanda, I'm sorry, and I'll, and I'll apologize <laughs> to you directly. <laughs> um, my wobble is not empathy. No, you're, as we like to call an empathy anchor, which is folks, empathy wobblers out there, marry yeah, team up. up. <laughs> team up, marry up, whatever up, but oh. go, go find yourself. Empathy anchors. <laughs> yeah, the, the bad news is that we all have wobbles. There's no shame in it. No. The good news is that we also have anchors. Yeah. So one of these three drivers of trust 
is rock solid. Literally, my logic yep. is always there. And my authenticity is sound. My empathy, you put little sticky notes to remind me of my empathy. Right, right. <laughs> what would somebody in a room observe if they saw your authenticity wobble? Um, here's a recent example. I'm an excellent bedtime valet <laughs> to our children. You really are. And one of our sons basically said he was ready for his turn down service <laughs> uh, the other night. And I said, great, I'll be there in five minutes. And uh, he said, no, you won't. I was like, yeah, I just got to, I just got to, you know, wipe the counter down. He's like, no, you're going to like, you're going to let the dogs out and you're going to, you know, do the dishes and you're going to, it's not going to be five minutes. It's going to be 15 minutes. Stop saying things that don't, that aren't, right. and aren't it was, authentically true. It was my empathy anchor kicking in, knowing what he wanted to hear and, and giving it to him, but it was at the expense of my authenticity. And so uh, there was a, there was a trust Nick that happened in that moment. It's such a beautiful example. All right. So I want to start to get into fixes and let's start with logic since it's, relatively neutral territory for us. Francis, what is a logic wobble and what can you do if you have one? Yeah, so first I just want to tell you the good news. If you're a logic wobbler, it's the easiest one to solve. I think- <gasps> Shocking. It w and I think it'll be solved by the time you're done listening to this episode. So if I don't think you have a rigorous plan, I'm not going to trust you. So how do we fix a logic wobble? Well, the first thing is to realize that logic wobbles come in two forms. One form is that you might doubt my logic when I actually have great logic. And this one is tragic. And it's because the way in which I choose to communicate my logic doesn't give you access to it. Mm. My logic is great. It's just my communication style that has to change. So the first logic wobble, we call a style wobble, a communication style wobble, don't go to the library to get more rigorous. <laughs> right. Just change the way in which you communicate. So- in our experience doing this work, most logic wobblers are stylistically wobbling well on logic. Well north of three quarters. Yeah. So if, if that's my self-diagnosis, how do I fix it? Oh, goodness. So, um, you know, when I like take you on a winding road and I give you a few paragraphs and then I get to the point and it's like beautiful storytelling. Well, beautiful storytelling only works on top of logic. So if people are doubting your logic, start with the point, headline first and then give supporting evidence. Um, is so the, if I know that my exposure in moments of stress or- <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, I tend to get wobbly on logic. Um, one simple fix is to, when I'm communicating my ideas, start with the point first. Yeah. And I will just say for those of you for whom this is an issue, I get it why you want to delay your point. Because you want to like assert your credibility. You want to give all kinds of context and, and, and you're warming the audience no up. No bad parts. No yeah. bad parts. You're warming, warming the audience up and you're warming yourself up. And I just want to say, you have to do the unnatural act of begin with your point and then give the supporting evidence. And oh my gosh, you're going to be like, people are no longer questioning my logic. It works like magic. Beautiful. Okay, when you do see logic substantively getting wobbly- right. Yeah. Uh, in the workplace, what tends to be going on? So one of my favorite singers in the world is Cheryl Wheeler. Cheryl Wheeler wrote a song called Frequently Wrong, But Never in Doubt. 
That's a substance wobble. So you'll never have a substance wobble if you just speak confidently about what you know well. Substance wobbles come out to play when you speak just as confidently about things you don't know well. Got it. And so, you know, so the prescription, it's going to, it's a little, it's just as easy to state. Make sure you know something well before you speak with confidence. So either delay right. <laughs> or lower your confidence. I love that. I, I, I feel like we saw a lot of that happening over the last few years around the question of COVID policy. Oh my gosh. So we would have- So em- much confidence. We employees <laughs> basically say to management, when will COVID end? Which was not, which was an understandable question. Yeah. The shocking part was that we would have managers answer the question. Um, and I think there are two prescriptions there. Lower your confidence, which we didn't really think anyone knew. But then when someone says they do know, well, then we are going to start doubting everything you say. Right. Because we don't know when to trust your confidence. I, I feel like you have some beautiful phrases to lower confidence yeah. and still communicate what you have to say. Here's my initial thought. This is my hypothesis. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's all I got to do. It's, yeah. it's rarely more than five words. Mm-hmm. This is what I think, but this is what I, 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 I want to go confirm yeah. the data. That's why yeah. I like to say this is my initial thought as mm-hmm. opposed to this is what I think, because that one could be gray. Yeah, nice. Nice. Um, I like that. Yeah. Great. This is my current hypothesis. This is my current hypothesis. Yep. You can go say anything you want then. I think a fair answer is also, I don't know, but this is the process I'm going to follow to get to the answer. All right, let's move on to empathy Mm. because we are in the age of empathy wobbles. Yes. Because I'm looking at an empathy wobbler. I do feel like it's important to share that there are some demographic tendencies in empathy wobblers and that you people, (laughs) and I'm saying it with so much love and affection. I feel it with love and affection. Tend to be the traditionally smartest, most analytical, fastest processors in a room. Yes, we're super speedy processors. You're super speedy processors. Um, Let me give you an example of where I feel like empathy wobblers are on flamboyant display, which is in a meeting, which is where we are all spending so much of our time. So if I were to follow you into a meeting in a moment where you were not particularly self-aware, and I were to chart your engagement <laughs> in the meeting, I would say it would peak pretty early. Super early. Uh, because you, you got it. Yeah. And you, you maybe got it before most yeah. of the other people in the meeting. Yeah. And I'm at like right the moment, right before I get it, I'm at peak engagement. And then what happens, Francis? <laughs> well, the second I get it, my engagement plummets. Yeah. And we see that a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then it, frankly, and then it flatlines. And it flatlines until the meeting mercifully comes to an end. Yeah, and we call it the arc of the super smart or ass for short. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you'd think, well, wow, am I suffering privately? No, we're not. <laughs> we're not wondering that, Francis, because you <laughs> are... That's what I mean by flamboyant display. You are using every nonverbal cue to tell us that you are fucking done with this meeting. You're multitasking, you're fidgeting. Arms crossed. Yeah, yeah. Like you're, you're, you're not brow. happy. Yeah. So 
if I were to inject empathy, oh yeah, into Francis Fry empathy wobbler in this meeting, I think what we would see is that that level of engagement stays high. Yeah, so I'd get it just as quickly. I think this is a good public service announcement. Yeah. The presence of empathy does not make us less smart, less speedy. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I would stay deeply engaged until the last among us gets it. Yeah. It's like a beautiful educator. Yeah. And what does that look like? Oh. I mean, that sounds like beautiful poetry, but what does it actually like practically look like? Oh, so like I'm observing what are the pebbles that are getting in the way? Yeah. And I might ask a sort of artful question that will surface the pebble and then let someone else come in and yeah. swoop in with a beautiful prescription to the answer. So without anyone really knowing it, we just accomplished so much in so little time and my fingerprints aren't even on it. Yeah. Or I'll be listening to someone who I know well and I know that they love to garden and we're doing something and I can just see they're not catching this example. I'll use a gardening analogy, boom, they get it immediately. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your shorthand for coaching people on empathy wobbles? It's to be present in the presence of other people. Yeah. It's so liberating to just have it be that. And that if I can't be present, video off. Yeah. All right, let's fix my authenticity oh, wobble. a pleasure, baby. What's my first move? Uh, the first move is to just realize that it's the hardest one to fix and you can't fix it alone. I know you don't like I don't, that. I don't like where we're starting. All right. Well, here's the thing about authenticity. If I'm going to show up authentically in front of a group of people, it's naive to think what the group of people does is immaterial. Think about how much easier everyone else in the room can make it for me to show up as my authentic self. And what's the headline on what that kind of work looks like? Oh, uh, first, realize that the comfort showing up as yourself is not equally distributed throughout the world. So if I am in the majority for whatever that is, if I'm in the majority, it's so much easier for me to show up with myself. But if I represent a small, minuscule bit of difference, so much harder. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge that we don't have equal access to comfort showing up as ourselves and that it changes as we change with the majority to the minority, mm -hmm. right? So being queer, right? <laughs> I can't, it's going to be really hard for me to be authentic in a country where it's illegal to be gay, which is frankly why I don't go to them <laughs> because right. I won't feel safe. So I think safety is the first thing. Everyone else in the room has to make sure that each person that walks in the door, are they reasonably feeling safe? Mm -hmm. Once you check that off, are they reasonably feeling welcome? You know, when I walk in the room, I look it up and like people are vying for me to sit next to them. I'm welcome. They're smiling. So it's safe then welcome. And then it gets really interesting. And now it is, is my unique contribution sought after? So what if I can answer a question that comes uniquely from my lived experience or uniquely from my, you know, you ask me something about Uber and no one else knows about Uber in the room. You're now, you know, celebrating my unique experience. Mm -hmm. My authenticity is just going to flourish. Mm -hmm. So we want to really set the conditions for unique contributions to come forward. Um, and then we want to make sure that we can do that at scale. And I feel like you think about it at scale better than I do. Yeah. I mean, you're describing our inclusion dial framework. Yeah. So authenticity is co-produced. There's uh, an essential part of that, that equation that other people 
can, must, should be doing to create authentic spaces yes. where people can show up as their multi-dimensional selves. Yes. The other side of the equation is what can I do as an individual to show up more fully as myself in environments where it's safe to do so. Yeah. And I am confident I've been experimenting with this for decades <laughs> on myself. I think where it starts is in what a bucket that I sometimes call authenticity hacks or authenticity boosters. Yeah. So what are the things that remind me of my multi-layered, multi-dimensional self? And I have tried lots of things, Everything. as you know. <laughs> um, I've sometimes brought our son's Lego pieces and put them in my pocket. I love to remind you of your evening valet work. <laughs> just, just to, yeah, yeah, just to remind yeah. me of that version of myself, yeah. which is very authentic. Yeah. You bring out a very authentic version yeah. of me, which is part of why I love uh, the work we get to do together. Because when I am standing next to you, I'm far less likely to wobble on authenticity than when I'm not. And I think for authenticity wobbles, you too must partner up <laughs> and have a, an opportunity to partner up yeah. um, and surround yourself with people who remind you of who you are and build a team, yeah. you know, and meet with that team regularly and make sure that they are as comfortable with your audacity as they are with your insecurity or as comfortable with your insecurity as they are with your audacity. Yeah. You know, when you said surround yourself with people who like remind you of, of who you are. I also think it helps to just hang out with people that are they themselves are very authentic. Totally. I mean, we yeah. talk about empathy being infectious. Emotions yeah. in general are infectious. Yeah. Uh, authenticity it's very is infectious as well. Yeah. It's why we don't just do this work and have people know their wobbles. The yeah. reason we want people to know their anchors is that's where you can go proactively be helpful. Right. Exactly. If I'm listening to this conversation, how, how do I go about figuring My out- self-diagnostic? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So here's what I would say. Think back to the most recent time when you had a skeptic and assume it was your fault. What did the skeptic doubt about you? Did they doubt that it was the real you? Did they think you were trying to be someone you're not? Did they doubt that your intentions included them? Did they doubt that you had a good idea? <laughs> right. And that is authenticity, empathy, or logic. So whichever one that is, identify that as a wobble. And if it's not perfect, it'll be your first draft. We find that eight out of 10 people have an accurate initial diagnosis. Um, so w which is the one that tends to get in the way? And here I just want to let listeners know, I'm an empathy wobble, but I definitely, my empathy is on display the vast majority of the time. These are only for the rare instances when I lose trust. So right. it's not that I don't, all of us have all three. Right, 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 It's right, just right. which is the one that gets in the way. And then I think it's important to do a self-diagnostic first and then go ask someone who knows you and loves you. And just believe them because we are revealing who we are all day, every day to everyone else and occasionally to ourselves. Yeah, that's great. And most of us are building trust most of the time. It's one of the great oh. advantages of our species. Yes. And we're really talking about those rare moments where you have lost trust. And then, how, I mean, the a central question of our, the work we do is how do you rebuild trust quickly, which is what we're going to do now. And a central additional public service announcement is trust can be rebuilt quickly. So yeah. there's a lot of myths out there that once you break it, you can never rebuild it. And I just want to go on the record and say nonsense. <laughs> right. I mean, that, we see it every single every day. Every single day. At the individual level, the team level. Yeah.
So Francis, uh, to close this out, I want to circle back to our Uber story. You spent a year there, give or take. What was different by the end? Oh, everything. So the, the headlines that we saw in the newspaper, they had stopped by then. Everyone just was brought together. And by the way, when I arrived, I'll round it off to everyone was embarrassed to work there. And that embarrassment manifested and people didn't, were less likely to go out to parties. They would self-report because they didn't want to have to defend Uber at the parties. People didn't admit to their Uber drivers that they worked at Uber. And people wouldn't wear Uber t-shirts and carry around Uber loot. And so when I got there, I said, look, I see the future and I am, I'm so optimistic about it. So I'm going to wear an Uber t-shirt every day until everyone else in the organization feels comfortable wearing their Uber t-shirt again. Um, and so lots of Uber swag <laughs> was there. Uh, people were going to parties. They were admitting that they went there and they were also thriving in just magnificent, magnificent ways. So remember that the company's problem was an empathy wobble. We had diagnosed that when we arrived and that created a huge breakdown in trust between the company and a variety of stakeholders. That got fixed one by one with each of these stakeholders. For drivers, we took their suggestions seriously and we added tipping. We changed the last drive of the day. We had numbers that they could call where they could get service in three minutes, not three hours, not 30 or days. three weeks. Or yeah. three weeks. <laughs> for employees, we made sure that managers were trained and that in particular for female employees, we made sure that they were cared for so that if you had a problem, there was a trusted third source that you could go to. And if you didn't feel like your manager was the right person, we had alternatives that you could go to. And we had an increase of people who came and talked to us about their problems. Whereas before, oh my goodness, you had a problem, you went to your manager, it was handled horribly, and then you just felt silenced and shut down. For regulators, we made sure that they were being collaborated with, not, we weren't competing with them, we weren't antagonizing them, we weren't running over them, but we were talking with them about what we were trying to accomplish and what their needs were, and we co-produced solutions. And I'll say what happened, really what happened after a year, I became obsolete. Which is our favorite metric of success. It is indeed. Awesome. So here's a closing reflection we'll invite our listeners to think about is what can you start doing tomorrow to build more trust with the people in your lives, your kids, your customers, your colleagues? What's one action you can take based on this conversation? And thanks for listening today. We want to hear from you too. If you want to figure out a workplace problem together, send us a message, email us at fixable at ted.com or call us at 234-FIXABLE. That's 234-349-2253. Fixable is brought to you by the TED Audio Collective. It's hosted by me, Francis Fry. And me, Ann Morris. Our team includes Isabel Carter, Constanza Gallardo, Lydia Jean Cott, Sarah Nix, Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, Alejandra Salazar, Ban Ban Chang, and Roxanne Highlash. Ben Cheno is our mix engineer. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend to check us out. And one more thing. If you can, please take a second to leave us a review. It really helps us make a great show. And it totally helps the search algorithm. 
If you enjoyed this episode, listen to another one of my favorites, a re-release of my conversation with Stu Friedman, founder of the Wharton Leadership Program. In the episode, How Total Leadership Transforms Your Life Beyond Work, we talk about leadership as a lifelong practice and work-life integration. Leading Up with Udemy will be back for season five on January 10th. If you haven't already, follow Leading Up with Udemy to get notified when the new season begins in the new year. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. 